Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, we should get started. Good morning. My name is Baba Tinde. Uh, my wife Gretchen and I are uh, members of Delray Baptist Church, and it's my privilege to get to, to uh, open up God's Word before us today. Um, and I guess before we get into his word, um, John Henderson, would you mind praying for us? Father, we praise you for being a God who is holy, who is righteous, and just, and who has, of your own um, goodness and kindness, reconciled yourself to us in Jesus Christ, and has reconciled us to you, and has given the gift of conviction. So thank you for that gift, and actually your spirit softening our heart to the truth, and burdening us with our sin, and drawing us. Amen. Thank you for this blessed doctrine. We pray that you would uh, strengthen Babatunde today as he teaches us, humble us to receive the word, and grow us and build us up as a church in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, um, if this is your first time or if you've been attending the Foundation series, you know that Foundations is a, it's, it's kind of a systematic theology of these great doctrines of the Bible. So uh, last semester, last year, we looked at different doctrines such as the, the covenants uh, in the Old Testament, the New Testament. We looked at uh, the Christology, which is a study of Christ. We looked at doctrines of the Bible, such as the, uh, the offices of Christ, him being a prophet, a priest, and a king. Uh, so this semester, we turn our attention to the Holy Spirit. And uh, that, that's what's known as pneumatology. So pneuma, the Greek for spirit, tology, which is the study of the spirit. And so, so we've been going through the doctrine uh, of the Holy Spirit with uh, Pastor John Henderson kicking it off with the person of the Holy Spirit, that he's not just some force, as you have in Star Wars, like a force, this mystic force, but, but an actual person. And... We also talked about the, the work of the Holy Spirit, talked about his ministry and what he does for the Christian. And so today, we are, we're diving even deeper, talking today about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, you know, as Pastor John kicked it off and, and talked about the, the work of the Spirit, we're going to focus in a little bit more about a specific work of the Holy Spirit, which is his work of conviction we're going to use the word work and ministry interchangeably. So when I speak of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and to begin our discussion, I'd like to kind of kick it off with, with a uh, quote by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon says this, It is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. So let me say that again. It is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them, to glorify Christ. Brethren, what the Holy Spirit does must be right for us to imitate. Therefore, let us endeavor to glorify Christ. To what higher ends can we devote ourselves than to something to which God, the Holy Ghost, devotes himself? Be this then your emotional prayer. Blessed Spirit, Help me to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think what we see here is that, as, as Spurgeon stated, the Holy Spirit does many things. He has many ministries. 
but chief among them is this ministry of glorifying Jesus Christ. And, and I think to illustrate that, a, a good illustration would be in, in government or as, as we're in a time of transition in, in, in political office, you have at the very top of an organizational structure the, the chief executive, the, govern, the governor. And you have these subordinate positions in that organizational chart that all run up to supporting the head, right? Or if you want to look at the European model, uh, you don't have a president, but you have a prime minister. And, and, and these subordinate offices that report to that minister, you'd have, for example, the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, these different ministers that are all supporting this prime ministry or the prime minister. And so, so I think so it is with the Holy Spirit, right? If, if what Spurgeon is saying here is that at the head of his work is this chief work of the ministry of the glorification of Jesus Christ. And every other work that he does is a manifestation of glorifying Jesus Christ. And so, for example, we would have the ministry of the Holy Spirit's ministry of intercession, his ministry of regeneration, his ministry of teaching, and then where we are today is, is focusing in on just the scope of his work, which is his ministry of conviction. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and the main idea for, for what we're talking about today is the doctrine of conviction is an understanding of one of the vital ministries of the Holy Spirit. And so it answers the questions about how does the Holy Spirit draw us to salvation? How does he call us to saving faith and repentance and then how does the Holy Spirit enhance Christian character? And so today, in order to talk about this, uh, you have there in your handout kind of an outline of, of how we will talk about this with the help of, of one of the books that we've gone through here by Sinclair Ferguson. It's called The Christian Life. And, and with uh, Sinclair Ferguson, we come up with this framework about this ministry of the Holy Spirit, where we explore first the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What is it? Um, and then we talk about the Holy Spirit's ministry of the conviction and what areas does he convict. And then we will also talk about the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction. And then finally, Lord willing, we'll talk about the degrees of conviction by the Holy Spirit and some of those implications for our discussion. And so with the first point being the conviction by the Holy Spirit. And so we come to this word conviction you know, it's, I think it's always helpful when we talk about terms that perhaps we don't use every day. You know, conviction, especially as it can have many different meanings. You know, you can hear the word conviction in referring to courage of our conviction, a deeply, strongly held belief. Or you can talk about conviction as in someone being guilty, as in a convict. So, so there are many ways that we can think about this. Um, and I think it was last week that our brother Mark Butman, in talking about effectual calling, uh, kind of started off this discussion about uh, conscience. This is another word that's, that's related. And so, so in talking about conviction, before we get into talking about this some more, would there be someone willing to turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 14 to 15? Romans chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. I think it's going to help us better come to a... a grasp the essence of this word conviction as, as we explore this, this term. And you can raise your hand when you have it. Dave Dahl. For when Gentiles who do not have the law 
by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have to do They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So, so I've written up here on the board um, this idea that we just read in Romans chapter 2 about the, the word is conscience, right? Now, just by looking at this word, I think we can come to an understanding of its, of its meaning here. Uh, so the word is conscience. Now, if I were to draw a line right down the middle of this word, we see two words, and its etymology is, is Latin, right? Uh, does anyone know con, what that means? With, right? So in Latin or, or even in Spanish, con would mean with. So, so here we see this word with. And then we recognize this word, which is science. science. And science means, means knowledge. Or what else could science mean? Truth, right? Or truth or reason. Right, so conscience, it, you know, that gets to the essence of what he just said in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It says that, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So it's getting to this idea that we're all beginning with knowledge. Whether you're Believers or unbelievers, everyone begins this life here with this knowledge about God, about his created order. And so, so, so that's kind of where we begin, is with conscience. And then we move to this other word, conviction, right? So looking at the etymology or the origin of this word, again, we said con means, it means with, right? And so this, this Latin word that we've borrowed into our English vocabulary, viction it comes from the, the past tense of the word convincer, or it's convictus, right? Uh, so if you, if you broke this down, it would be vincer. Anyone who speaks Latin or <laughs> know what vincer means? Right? So, it, so this is two separate words here. Vincer is to conquer, right? And so you can sort of see con- a convincer. It's to conquer. And I think it, we get to the essence of conviction when you look at this word, to conquer with. I think it gets to the idea of sort of being made to submit to the truth. Right? And, and so, so t- conviction is this idea of being made to see, made to understand, to be convinced of something. And so, so that's, that's kind of the root of this, this English word, since obviously we translated the, the English Bible from the Latin Vulgate, it would make sense that we see some of the language uh, of things like conviction and conscience. And Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Christian Life, notes that the word John uses for conviction literally means to scorn or to convince. That's the word that John uses. Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition of conviction is this, to find or prove to be guilty or the state of being convinced. I thought it was also helpful that we need to note that the word convict or conviction as it appears in scripture, you know, it's not always used the same way. It's not always the same word that is used. 
So would someone turn to John chapter 16, verse 8 to 11? And someone else, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. So, so we started off talking about how conviction is either to be convinced or to be reproved or, or to, to be proved of, of being guilty of something. So in scripture, we're going to find these words used different, differently. Um, and these are a couple of key examples of those. Who has John 16, verse 8 to 11? When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Okay. Thank you, brother. And who has Hebrews 11, verse 1? Excellent. So, so we've already seen in just two verses here two of the ways a conviction is used. And if we went all the way back to the Greek, where the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in Greek, we see that the word that's used in John chapter 16, verse 8 to 11, is this word, and I don't speak Greek, so I'm going to do my best to pronounce it here. It's alejo, right? And, and that rendition or, or use of that word means to expose, to convict, or to reprove. And then in, in the Hebrews verse, we see this other word that's used, and it's upostasi, right? It's, it's this word of, of confidence in, the sense of understanding or assurance. So, so there's two different ways that we're seeing the word conviction being used. And so as we talk about conviction primarily today, we're talking about that, that former word, conviction of being proven guilty of something. Uh, that, that's primarily what we're going to see as we, as we study this ministry of the Holy Spirit, referring primarily to the conviction of wrong, though it is also the Holy Spirit that renders conviction in the form of elejo or upostasi, right? He, he's the same one that creates that, that, that sense of wrong or that sense of confidence and understanding that we are in Christ. So, so I thought that was pretty helpful for, for the background into what we talk about today. And then as we read in John chapter 16, verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So, so what we see right there in that verse is sort of the Holy Spirit's charter, right? His mission as to what he, he is about doing in the lives of the believers. And, and it, it states clearly that he, the person of the Holy Spirit, is the author of conviction. Is there someone else who would get uh, John 16, verse 13? And someone else, please get 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Okay. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are come. Hmm. So there we get into this idea, again, that it is the Spirit who is the author of truth. He's the author of, of I mean, the Spirit is God, as, as John taught us in, in the person of the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And so he's, he's speaking the same things that, that Christ spoke. He's, he's affirming them. He's confirming them. 
And so, so when the spirit of truth comes, he is the author. He's the one who will guide us into this conviction of truth, right? And who has 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14? Uh, but. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Hmm. Right, so what does it mean to, to discern? To discern is to understand, it's to recognize, it's to, it's to identify with. And so, so Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, is going to drive that point home. Don't you just love that synthesis of Scripture? How it, it's continuously confirming that it is the Spirit who is the one who makes it possible to have conviction, to have understanding. It is the Spirit because, and we're going to talk about this some more, we cannot do it on our own. You know, that, that's, that's the foundational understanding. And so, so before we move to the next point, any questions about that? Okay, so, so then the next point here on, in your handout is this idea of, you know, before you even get into conviction, something needs to happen. And it, and it says that the prerequisite of the Holy Spirit's conviction is what? Regeneration. regeneration. And what is Regeneration. You know, regeneration is basically, it means a new genesis, a new beginning, right? It's like I can stand all day making a persuasive argument to this stand or this chair, and I can persuade and persuade, and I can have the best argument, the most logical argument there is, but are they going to respond? No. Why? Because they're inanimate objects, right? They're inanimate objects. They don't have life in them. They don't have the spirit of life in them. And so we're going to be seeing through the study of the ministry of the Holy Spirit's conviction, this idea of, of, of this need for life, this need for, for, for being made alive in order to respond. Does someone have, would someone please get John chapter 3, verse 3 to 5? Uh, someone else, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. Someone else, Colossians 2, verse 13. And we'll look at John 6, verse 37, and John 6, verse 44. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, Thank you, John. Unless one is born of water and the spirit. So it's the spirit that gives life. It's the spirit that does this work of regeneration. And so you have Nicodemus, who's this theologian, this, this rabbi, who should understand the words that are being spoken to him. But it's like an inanimate object. He doesn't, he doesn't have the life to discern those things that are only made possible by the spirit. And then the next verse is Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. Who has that? Yeah. And so even in this verse, we see again this reminder. Paul is reminding us that this is not of your own doing. It's not of you. It is of the spirit who gives life. Right. And, and so you need to be born of the spirit in order to experience anything in the spirit. Colossians 2 verse 13. Anyone have that? <laughs> 
brother. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, <coughs> having forgiven us our trespasses. Is that right? Yes. Thank you, sister. So, so there again, we're seeing this idea of spiritual deadness, right? It's like Paul couldn't make it any more clear that it's the state of all people concerning Christ is the state of deadness, of being inanimate, of, of being unresponsive to God. We're not simply unresponsive. We're, we're unable to respond. And then um, John 6, verse 37 Okay, and so this gets to the idea of what we talked about last week, which was effectual calling, right? And here what God is saying is, this is not of yourselves. He's saying all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Not they might come, not they probably will come. It's they will. And why is that? Because it's not of our doing. It is because of him. And he clarifies that in John chapter 6, verse 44, and he clarifies exactly why. He said it's because no one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is the Father who draws. It is the Spirit who, while we think it is of our own doing, the Bible is clearly saying that it is God himself that does the work. Okay? Any questions about? No, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so I think to some extent, some of that is a mystery in terms of the, the sequence of it, right? But clearly, I think the, the Bible clearly makes, makes it evident how the Spirit does this. And, and that's actually into our next point, which is the means of the work of the Holy Spirit. But, but just using that analogy that we started earlier with of an inanimate object, right? I said, I can talk to this chair or this stand all day about something. I can persuade. But first, what needs to happen for it to respond? What needs to happen? It needs life. It needs to be alive in order for it to, to do anything, in order for it to believe, in order for it to have conviction, or for it to have any understanding. And so, so we understand through Scripture that it is the Spirit who gives life and it's the Spirit who does every other work of teaching, of transforming, of sanctifying. It is the Spirit who does all this. And, and, and to our next point, and, and to your point, John, the means through he, which he does it is always with his word. Mm-hmm. Right? So the Spirit, the Bible teaches us over and over that this is how he does it. And may, may someone turn for us to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? And in Hebrews 1, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, verse 1, we, we heard this definition of faith, right? That, that, that it is the upostasy. It is that confidence, that understanding. This faith is confidence, an understanding in Christ, who he is. And it says that it's done by the Spirit. So, so when the Spirit... When we hear the word of God, through this effectual calling of the Spirit, he gives us life 
through that word. He, he regenerates us and he convicts us of sin and takes us to Christ. Okay, that, that's what the spirit does. And he does it with the word of God. So Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes how? From hearing, hearing the word of God. And it is a work of the spirit. Does that get to your? Right. And, um, and that by doing that, this is necessarily Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think we can also say to that that you don't have one without the other. Right? You don't have conviction by the Spirit without regeneration by the Spirit. So, so, so if, if we were to even say instead of just a prerequisite, it is a co-requisite. These two must happen. And it is, it is all a work of the Holy Spirit. So, so I think that's a great question and a great point. Um, and, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? Uh, we, we see in Romans that all of us are born with this innate understanding, uh, this innate knowledge about, about God, right? It says specifically just creation or Psalm 19 verse 1, right? It says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So, so just by looking at nature, just looking at the world that God has created, we see the, 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 the work of God. We see his, his prince. You know, we see that he exists and that he is. And, and yes, that is meant to call in us this idea of, of seeking him and searching him out. But, but what the Bible teaches with, with some of these passages that we're going through is that this Going between a general calling, which we talked about, and a special calling, the general calling falls kind of under that category of conscience, right, where, where there's a general understanding. And then there's a special calling where, where God himself has to produce a work and call that person who would no, normally push aside that truth about himself. And, and he has to do a work to make it possible for them to have this conviction that leads them to him. Does that make it sense? Can only be done through scripture, or can that be just done and then eventually, like someone comes to the Lord? Like I just think, I just think of myself. Like I didn't know the scripture at all, mm-hmm. and not that by any means I'm there, but like I never doubted my relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, and then obviously now I've learned a lot after four years. But right. Does someone have to come and explain Christ to you, though, or at least name it, him? It must. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So it may not be that they were quoting chapter verse, yes. but right. explaining right. Christ's love. Right. And then your heart was ready and you believed. Like, Absolutely. I would imagine that's something. I guess I'm curious Absolutely. in my mind, like someone reading the Bible. Reading like, a passage. Yeah, right. and it's like, well, sometimes I don't know. Right. Right. And I think it's also helpful to remember when we talk about the, the word of God, right? It's the message of God, right? It's God 
it's, God is the word. It, it's, it's, it's Christ and it's this gospel of the word. So, so just as, as you were thinking, it, it's not necessarily alone that one had heard Romans 10 verse 17 quoted to them, but they heard the gospel. Right? There's no conviction. There's no conviction of sin. There's no understanding of Christ without the message of Christ. Does that make sense? So, 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 so I think, and, and it's a great question because I think that gets at the heart of what Romans 10 verse 17 is saying. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right? Yeah. I'm not a, I don't know if the Greek, so maybe somebody knows this, but that reminds me of what's in the beginning there was the word and the word mm. was with God and the word was God. Right. Jesus was the word, so it's in that passage, it doesn't mean a book, mm-hmm. some written scripture. So I'm just curious if that the word word is the same translation of the Greek word, the same application. Yeah, well, I don't speak Greek, but, <laughs> but it's not limited to a book of writings by people. The word is much greater. So right. Jesus Himself is the word became flesh. And Absolutely. So that may be what this means, other than the book. Right. Yeah, and, and I think we just, even just as the word conviction, I think there, there are multiple uses of the word, right? So, so in those passages that you reference, perf- clearly the word refers to Christ himself, right? But there's also passages where the word of God is being spoken about the message of God. Um, and so, so, so when we talk about the word of God, we're talking about Christ. And the message that we're talking about is the message of Christ. So, so while it's distinct, we're still talking about the same thing. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Right. I just was, it just, it's an interesting thing. Right. It's sort of the same word. Yeah. yeah and, and, and also to that point, I think you were referencing in Genesis chapter 1, um, we also find that the Spirit was there in the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and, and I think I do know the Greek on that one, the Spirit is referred to as, is it the word ruach? Ruach? Uh, he's the Spirit who's hovering over the waters of the earth. And so, so even as we talk about the Spirit and the Word, we're talking about the Spirit of Christ all the way back to Genesis 1. Micah? So I was just going to say, I think part of the heart of it is just that like, God has to reveal himself to man for us to understand him. And so he's done that most preeminently through Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's happened in a lot of other ways, too. Before Christ, it was through the prophets. Mm-hmm. Now we have it recorded in his right. Word that we can go back to and see his revelation to us. But you know, it, it's God revealing himself. Amen. His people through his Amen. 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 Yeah, just another thing on the you know the idea of Romans that all men can see the glory of God in creation, but the reformers what they would say is that the Scripture was necessary. Mm. You know the necessity of Scripture. You have to read the Word to understand Christ and who He is, and yet the creation should drive you to the Scripture and the necessary. And that also, Scripture is sufficient. Amen. Excellent. Jeremiah, thank you, brother.
Amen. Amen. That's great. Thank you, brother. Very good. Yeah, these are all great questions, great points. Um, and, and to what Jeremiah just said, too, you know, we're, we're looking at the ministry of the Spirit's conviction, but we also know, as, as we said at the beginning, that his ultimate work is to glorify Christ, right? And the way he does it is, yes, through conviction, but he has all these other ministries of, of sanctification, of, of teaching and making the word known to us. And so, so to, to that point that Jeremiah just made, that it, you know, he, he's also the one that guides us into truth into understanding. And, and um, you know, we, we can go through some additional verses on this, but let me read one, which is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And it says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one is speaking in the Spirit of God, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, a life-given spirit. So we're, we're talking about the spirit of Christ. We're talking about how he works out this work of both regeneration and conviction and understanding in the heart of the believer. It is the spirit that does all this work, and he does it through the word of God. So any other questions before we move on? Okay, so, so we move on then to the next point in your handout, which is the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction. So Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Christian Life, helps us kind of categorize these as three different ways in which the Spirit does this work of conviction. And we first read it in John chapter 16, verse 8, sort of the charter or the mission of the Spirit's work. Christ displayed it clearly for us. He says, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict, using that word, elejo, right? He will prove wrong the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so Sinclair Ferguson has helped us focus in that these are the areas, the three areas in which the Spirit convicts. He convicts of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, And so we're going to spend a little bit more time unpacking these a little bit more. Um, And and let's start by talking about why the spirit must convict of sin. Why why is that even necessary? Would someone please get Jeremiah 17, verse 9? Someone else, John chapter 3, verse 19? Someone, Romans 3, verse 10? And then Ephesians 2, verse 1? And then Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. We'll leave it at those. So first is Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, desperately sick or wicked. Right? And so when, he's, when Jeremiah talks about the heart, he's not talking about the, the organ, the heart. He's talking about the inner man, the inner being, that spirit, that, that spiritual being. It's saying it's wicked. It's desperately wicked, right? And, and, and other scriptures unpack the nature of that wickedness. Who can know it? That, that, that's where we all begin. We, we may have conscience, 
but, but our natural inclination is toward evil and wickedness. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's where we, be, we begin. John 3, verse 19. Did you catch that there? Jesus is saying, here's the verdict. Here's the judgment, as it were. Okay, He, the light, has come into the world. But do people naturally gravitate toward him? Is that, is that what we see in Scripture? People run into Christ in the sense of, yeah, tell us, you know, we, we, want, we, we, we want all this stuff of, of conviction and, and wrong that you're telling us, that we're wrong. Is that what we naturally do? It's saying people love darkness. They don't just prefer it, they love it. Their hearts are evil, as Jeremiah said. And so they love that. And it's, it's the natural state of mankind to go toward evil and away from good. So men love darkness, is what Jesus Christ says. And then we see in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Right. So so you'll we'll hear in maybe at work or or, you know, in, in recreation or, or with friends, we'll hear things like, oh, that's that's a good person or, or, or that's a good guy. That's that's a good girl. Whereas Paul would say here, Romans three, verse 10, there is no one who is good. Right. Jesus himself would say to, to the rich man, he'd, he'd say, when he calls him good teacher, Jesus would ask him, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? There's no one who is good except God, right? So it gets to this understanding that only God is good. Mankind is fallen. Mankind is evil. Mankind is bent toward evil. And so, so we need something to happen if, if we are to, to, be, to be good. Mm. So that, that's great. Isaiah. The evilness of that evil is that we don't see it, we don't think it's wrong, and so just the conviction to even call it what it is right. is not in us. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And, and, and scripture would say, you know, woe to you who call good evil and evil good, right? And so, so it's, it's this warped, corrupted, you know, distorted lens that we have about what is good and what is evil. And, and, and the Bible just keeps calling that out in us. Um, and then j- just a couple of verses that go to what we talked about earlier. Um, Ephesians 2, verse 1, and the other will be Romans 1, verse 18 to 20. So who has Ephesians 2, verse 1? Right. <laughs> okay, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Again, the synthesis of Scripture, this continual idea of just saying you were dead. You weren't like, you weren't kind of going one way and then the spirit just kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, no, come back this way. Or any other analogy that people come up with is saying it's of our own will that we came to Christ. No, he says you were dead. You were inanimate. Inanimate people don't do anything. Inanimate objects don't do anything. You were dead. And so the spirit needs to do a work in you. Right? And then the, the last verse um, is Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. Eric, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God 
opinion. God made it evident to them. But since the creation of the world has been visible as an existence, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Uh, thank you, brother. So we see that. Remember what we said in all these other passages in Scripture, how we begin with conscience? This verse is is one of the clear cases right there, talking to the fact that God's created his attributes, his divine attributes is on display with what he has created. But what does it say there in verse 18? It says, men who by their unrighteousness, men and women who by their unrighteousness, do you notice that word? Suppress the truth. They don't just not listen to the truth. They suppress it, right? As God is speaking and, and God's word is going forth, men are, are stopping their ears and saying, we don't want to hear that. We love our sin and we want to continue to live in it. Men love darkness. Men suppress the truth. So while we all begin with knowledge, while we all kind of have this innate ability to recognize God, to see that there is a God, and should that should drive us to worship him, often what it does is it makes us suppress that truth instead. And so, so it's not of our doing, and we can't do it on our own. And, and other verses go into this. We see in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, that the Gentiles who do not have the law, when they, by the nature, they prove the point, when they do good works, actually, when they do the things that are right, that the Bible will say are good works, when they do what the law requires, they show that conscience, right? Or Romans 8, verse 7, to prove this point of how hostile we are to God, it says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's not neutral. It's not passive. It's hostile. It's actively opposing God. David would say in Psalm 51, verse 5, in sin, in sin, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay, you don't need to teach a baby or a child how to disobey, or how to do wrong, or how to lie, how to cover up. How does it come to them? Naturally, right? It is, it is the nature of fallen man to sin, to cover up, to suppress the truth, to say, don't do that, and then they do that. And they do the direct opposite of what God has said is, is just and the standard and good and righteous. So that's where we all begin, right? And, and, and then finally, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they are foolishness to him. And in order for him to understand them, you need the Spirit, because it's only by the Spirit that they are discerned. They are spiritually discerned. And so, so this explains heavily, the evidence is weighty of why we need the Spirit of God to, to, to convict us of sin. Because, because we're going the other way, right? And so our next point, for the sake of time here, we'll, we'll move along. It says, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin for what purpose? To bring us to Jesus Christ. That is his purpose of this ministry of conviction. And remember we said that all the work of the Spirit has the same chief end, which is to glorify God. And his purpose is to bring us to Christ. Uh, would someone please get Acts chapter 2, verse 36 to 37. Acts 
Acts chapter 2, verse 36 to 37. And so do you see that, this kind of case study, this case in point of, of how the Spirit works? Here we see him working through the Word, okay? See, see the apostles given the message of Jesus Christ, saying, it's this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were convicted of their wrong, of their guilt before God. And what was the response? They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Okay, the Spirit was working. The Spirit was regenerating, giving life, and he was working how? Through the Word of Christ. Okay, and that's how the Spirit always, always works in us. And, and, and to even further understand how he works here, you know, Timothy 2, verse 25, 1 Timothy 2, verse 25 says that, uh, Speaking to elders, you know, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He goes on to say that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. It is God who grants even repentance. It is God who grants faith, but he's the one who grants faith and repentance. It's all the spirit. Because why? Otherwise, we're what? We're dead. We can't respond. We are dead. And it's God who does that work. So we should move on, uh, but, but actually, before we do that, any other questions on this point? Okay, so going back to this char- charter, as it were, John 16, verse 8, which talked about that when he, the Spirit, comes, he shall convict the world of sin. We talked about that. And he also convicts the world of righteousness. Okay, so that's the second main area that we see the Holy Spirit's ministry of, work, of conviction at work. The main... And so it gets to the idea of what is the conviction of righteousness? What does that mean? Uh, John 16, verse 14. Who has that? John 16, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then we also see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, how these, how these verses kind of play together or tie together. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of God. Okay. Okay. Uh, did I have that right verse there? 1 Timothy 3, 16. Okay, maybe I put that wrong. So there's more. Do you want the rest of it? Uh, yes, please. Sorry. <laughs> that was me. It's manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Great. Thank you, sister. Thank you, Micah. So, so the, the, the key verse or the key verb in, that ver- in those verses there is that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Okay? So we get, again, to this idea of how the Spirit is, is coming along after Christ to witness, like in a witness stand, to say, yes, his case is true. Yes, his, the things he said about himself, they are true. And so he's testifying to our spirits. And he's confirming and affirming the work of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's given us eyes to see. He's removing the scales, as it were, for us to be able to see Christ and worship him. Okay? And, and so that, that is how the Spirit, 
That's what it means for him to convict the world of righteousness. And not, just even, not even just the believer. He convicts the entire world of righteousness, of what righteousness is. It's, he basically says, look to Christ if you want to know what righteousness looks like. Okay? Go ahead. You said that beautifully and excellent because I think it's Isaiah 6 verse 5 to your point where he, he looks at God, he, he looks at this vision of God and what does he say? He says, woe is me for I am, I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's the beauty that we see, the, the object of righteousness, it inspires righteousness, right? Excellent point, excellent point. Uh, we should move on though just to just for the sake of time, um, to, to our last point here, just as we talked about the conviction of sin and the conviction of righteousness, the final area, the main area in which the Spirit convicts us is concerning judgment, right? And, and as we ask the question of why is it necessary for him to convict about sin and righteousness, why is it necessary for, for God to convict us of judgment? Um, would someone get... Uh, Actually, here, would someone get instead uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Excellent. Excellent. So here we see that not only, you know, not only are we sinners, but there's also something else at work that keeps us in sin. And, and, he, and the Bible here calls him what? The God of this world who blinds the eyes of unbelievers, of, of men, who, who blinds the, the, their minds from receiving the word of God. It's in, in, in this world, constantly drawing our attention away from God. Even going all the way back to the garden, how did how did he begin? Deceiving our first parents, deceiving Adam and Eve. That's that's what he does. And so 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 that that's part of what it, the Holy Spirit works against is that he convinces us concerning judgment. And why he convinces us that the ruler of this world is judged. That means God has judged the ruler of this world, and so judgment is coming. Right, the judge of this world is going to judge all, both the ruler and and those who live under this world, who live of this world, and and, and so he convicts men to fear God of judgment that's coming. Now read uh, Colossians two verse thirteen to fifteen. It says, "And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him." having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Right? So, so, so God has done this work. And then our third point, um, as, as we kind of come to a conclusion here, our third point is some of the fruits of the Holy Spirit's work. So as he convinces us of sin, uh, as he convicts us of judgment, of righteousness, what does that produce? Well, the Bible teaches that it produces humility and it produces thankfulness. Okay? When we come across Romans chapter 1 and we read the word and the message of God, what it does is it says, wow, this is not of me. I had nothing to do with this. Salvation belongs to our God. And so what does it do? It produces humility. We see that even in in Galatians where Paul rebukes this church in Galatia where having begun by the spirit, they, they start wanting to rely on works of the law. And he says, you foolish Galatians, you know, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Right. And so he rebukes that and he says what the spirit did, the credit belongs to God. And he says that should correct. That should promote or or grow in us a sense of thankfulness or, or humility. And along with that, it also gives us a sense of thankfulness. Right. Um, and we see evidences of that in Scripture. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, we grasp the measure of God's grace in proportion to our sense of our need. And, and, and the excellent case in point is in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, where Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. Do you see this outpouring of thankfulness that came out? In, in this passage here that, that Christ refers to, there's this outpouring of thank you, Lord. I, I'm humble. I recognize that you, you, you made me alive. You called me out of darkness, out of deadness. You made me alive, and so I thank you. Okay? And so we see how he, he produces that work. And then the final point for, for our consideration and, and implications is that there's always going to be degrees of conviction by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Not everyone is convicted to the same degree, and not everyone needs to be convicted to the same degree, right? Um, You know, maybe if you consider children, maybe some children may need more severe punishment than other children, if if you've ever been in the classroom like my wife Gretchen has, right? Uh, he, He does just the amount of work that's necessary for the individual to sense their need for God, their sense of guilt, and the need to run to God. And, and so this is the work of the ministry of conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? He knows our needs, and, and, and it's on him that we rely, okay? And so, so in closing, any, just, just the implications about that. Is there anything that you have heard, or is there anything that you have questions about that you would like to, to comment on or, or ask about this ministry of conviction of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think in that passage, what we're understanding is 
uh, when we speak about this word conscience or being with knowledge, right, that God's law is written on our hearts, right? And so, so we hear his law, we, we know, we have a sense of what is right and what he requires. But we also have, because of this fallen nature, the sinful flesh, this conflicting thought that says, oh, I, know, I know that's right, but, but I'm going to go the other way, right? And so, so to the extent that I deviate from the standard that I know is God's law, I'm, I'm in conflict with his law, right? And so I have a thought that this is, what I, this is the way I should go, and then I, if I have a thought that this is the way I should go. And so when I go this way or that, there's a conflict. And what happens is I'm either excused by that same knowledge of God's word or excused, or I'm either accused or excused by it, mm-hmm. right? And that's conviction. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts or comments? Questions? All right, well, let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just um, thank you and praise you for your work. Thank you for your spirit. Father, we just thank you that without you, we are are left bankrupt. We are left with, with no recourse and no no way to come to you. But Lord, you are great in mercy. You're great in love. You're rich in mercy. You are rich in love that you, you called all people. You called, your, you called us who are in Christ to you. And that it is by you that we continue in Christ, Lord. Lord, just thank you for this doctrine of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would not neglect to thank you, to worship you, to worship God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we would just continually grow in our, our reliance, our dependence upon, and our thankfulness for the Spirit of Christ. Fill our hearts with your word. Let us be filled with the Spirit. Let us walk in the Spirit, Lord, and just bless the rest of our day and the rest of our time in hearing your word. And may, may by your Spirit we be transformed, change, and love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.